Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. Verse 1. And he say unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there will be some of them that stand here which will not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Burkett notes, There is a threefold sense of interpretation given these words by expositors. 1. Some refer the words to the times of the gospel after Christ's resurrection and ascension, when the gospel was preached and propagated far and near, and the kingdom of God came with power. Learn hence that where the gospel is powerfully preached and cheerfully obeyed, there Christ cometh most gloriously in his kingdom. 2. Others understand these words of Christ's coming and exercising his kingly power in the destruction of Jerusalem, which some of the apostles then standing by lived to see. 3. Others, as most agreeable to the context, understand the words as relating to our Savior's transfiguration, as if he had said, Some of you, meaning Peter, James, and John, shall shortly see me upon Mount Tabor, in such splendor and glory as shall be a shadow and representation of that glory which I shall appear in when I come to judge the world at the great day. And whereas our Savior says not, there should be some standing here which shall not die, but which shall not taste of death, this implies two things. One, that after they'd seen his transfiguration, they must taste of death as well as others. Two, that they should but taste of it and no more. From whence learn, one, that the faithful servants and disciples of Christ must at length, in God's appointed time, taste and have experience of death as well as others. Two, that although they must taste, yet they shall but taste of death. They shall not drink of the dregs of that bitter cup. Though they fall by the hand of death, yet shall they not be overcome by it, but in the very fall get victory over it. Verse 2. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Burkett notes, Here we have the history of our Savior's transfiguration when he laid, as it were, the garments of our frail humanity aside for a little time, assuming to himself the robes of majesty and glory, to demonstrate and testify the truth of his divinity. For this divine glory was an evidence of his divine nature, and also an emblem of that glory which he and his disciples, all of his faithful servants and followers, shall enjoy together in heaven. Verses 3-8 through eight. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he was not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they looked around about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. Burkett notes, Observe here, that to confirm the disciples' faith in the truth of Christ's divine nature, he was pleased to suffer the rays of his divinity to dart forth before their eyes, so far as they were able to bear it. 
his face shined with a pleasing brightness, and his raiment with such a glorious luster as did at once both delight and dazzle the eyes of the disciples. Observe, too, the choice which our Savior makes of the witnesses of his glorious transfiguration, his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. But why disciples? Why three disciples? Why these three? One, why disciples? Because this transfiguration was a type and shadow of his glory in heaven. Christ vouchsafes, therefore, the earnest and first fruits of that glory only to saints, upon whom he intended to bestow the full harvest in due time. Two, why three disciples? Because three were sufficient to witness the truth and reality of this miracle. Judas was unworthy of this favor. Yet, lest he should murmur or be discontented, others are left out as well as he. But three, why these three rather than others? Probably one, because these three were more eminent for grace, zeal, and love towards Christ. Now the most eminent manifestations of glory are made to those that are most excelling in grace. Two, these three disciples were witnesses of Christ's agony and passion, to prepare them for which they are here made witnesses of his transfiguration. This glorious vision upon Mount Tabor fitted them to abide the terrors of Mount Calvary. Observe 3. The glorious attendance upon our Savior at his transfiguration. They were two, two men, and those two men were Moses and Elijah. This being but a glimpse of Christ's glory, not a full manifestation of, only two of the glorified saints attend at it. These two attendants are not two angels, but two men, because men were more nearly concerned than angels in what was done. But why Moses and Elijah rather than other men? One, because Moses was the giver of the law, and Elijah was the chief of the prophets. Now both those attending upon Christ did show the consent of the law and the prophets with Christ, and their accomplishment and fulfilling in him. Two, because these two were the most laborious servants of Christ, both adventured their lives in God's cause, and therefore are highly honored by him. For those that honor him, he will honor. Observe 4. The carriage and demeanor of the disciples upon this great occasion. 1. They supplicate Jesus, not Moses and Elijah. They make no suit to them, but to Christ only. Master, it is good being here. Oh, what a ravishing comfort and satisfaction is the communion and fellowship of the saints. But the presence of Christ among them renders their joys transporting. 2. They proffer their service to farther the continuance of what they did enjoy. Let us make three tabernacles. Saints will stick at no pain or cost for the enjoyment of Christ's presence and his people's company. Learn hence that a glimpse of heaven's glory is sufficient to wrap a soul into ecstasy and to make it out of love with worldly company. Two, that we are too apt to desire more of heaven upon earth than God will allow. We would have the heavenly glory come down to us, but are unwilling by death to go up to that. Observe 5. How a cloud was put before the disciples' eyes when the divine glory was manifested to them, partly to allay the luster and resplendency of that glory which they were swallowed up with. The glory of heaven is unsupportable in this sinful state. We cannot bear it unveiled, and partly to hinder their farther praying and looking into that glory. We must be content to behold God through a cloud darkly here. Ere long we shall see him face to face. Observe 6. The testimony given out of the cloud by God the Father concerning Jesus Christ his Son. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Where note 1. The dignity of his person. He is my Son. For nature coessential, 
and for duration co-eternal with his father. Two, the endearedness of his relation. He is my beloved son because of his conformity to me and compliance with me. Likeness is the cause of love, and a union and harmony of wills causes a mutual endearing of affections. 2. The authority of his doctrine. Hear ye him, not Moses and Elijah who were servants, but Christ my son, whom I have commissioned to be the great prophet and teacher of my church. Therefore, adore him as my son, believe in him as your savior, and hear him as your lawgiver. The obedient ear honors Christ more than either the gazing eye, the adoring knee, or the applauding tongue. Verses 9 through 13. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Elijah verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be set to naught. But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Burkett Notes Observe here one. The strict injunction given by Christ to his disciples not to publish or proclaim this glorious vision at his transfiguration till after his resurrection, because, being now in a state of humiliation, he would have his divine majesty and glory veiled and concealed. Learn hence that the divine glory of Christ's person as God was not to be manifested suddenly and all at once, but gradually and by steps. First, more obscurely, by his miracles, by the forced acknowledgement of devils, by the free confession of his disciples, and by the glorious vision of his transfiguration. But the more clear and full, the more public and open manifestation of his divine glory was at the time of his resurrection and ascension. Observe, too, the disciples' obedience to Christ's injunction, touching the concealing of his transfiguration till after his resurrection. They kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. Not that they questioned the resurrection in general, but Christ's resurrection only in particular, because his resurrection did suppose his death, and they could not conceive how the Messiah, whom they erroneously supposed must be a temporal prince, should suffer death at the hands of men. Observe 3. The question which the disciples put to Christ, how the observation of the Jewish doctors holds goods, namely that Elijah must come before the Messiah came. We see the Messiah, but no Elijah. Our Savior answers that Elijah was come already. Not Elijah in person, but one in the spirit and power of Elijah, to wit, John the Baptist, who is prophesied of under the name of Elijah in the Old Testament and of the New, viz. John the Baptist. They were both men of great zeal for God and religion. They were both undaunted reprovers of the faults of princes, and they were both implacably hated and persecuted for the same. Thence learn that hatred and persecution, even unto death, has often been the lot and portion of such persons who have had the courage and zeal to reprove the faults of princes. Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Verses 14 through 29. 
And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground, and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came into him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it has cast him into the fire, and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out, and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, and rent him sore, and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch as that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can only come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The person brought to Christ for helping and healing, one bodily possessed by Satan, who had made him deaf and dumb from his childhood, and oftentimes cast him into fire and water, but rather to torment than to dispatch him. Oh, how doth Satan, that malicious tyrant, rejoice in doing hurt to the bodies as well as the souls of mankind. Lord, abate his power, since his malice will not be abated. How great is thy goodness in preserving us from the power and malice of evil spirits, and how watchful is thine providence over us to preserve us, when Satan is seeking by all imaginable means and methods to destroy us. Observe, too, the person that represents his sad condition to our Savior, his compassionate Father, who knelt down and cried out, Need will make a person both humble and eloquent. Everyone has his tongue to speak for himself, Happy is he that keeps a tongue for others. Observe 3. The circumstance of time. Satan had gotten possession of his person very young, in his youth, nay, in his childhood. And oh, how hard it was to cast him out after so long possession. The disciples could not do it with all their power and prayers. And when our Savior himself, by the power of his Godhead, did dispossess him, it was with foaming and renting that he left him. Thus, when Satan gets possession of a person's heart in their youth, oh, how hard it will be to cast him out. He will put the soul to great grief, great pain, great sorrow of heart. Satan will endeavor to hold his own and keep the sinner his slave and vassal, if all the power of hell can keep him. Lord, convince young persons that it is easier to keep Satan out than it is to cast him out of the possession of their hearts. Observe 4. The physicians which this distressed person is brought unto, first to the disciples, and then to Jesus. We never apply ourselves importunately to the God of power, till we despair of the creature's help. 
But why could not the disciples cast him out? Christ tells them because of their unbelief. That is, because of the weakness of their faith, not the total want of faith. Whence learn that secret unbelief may lie hid and undiscerned in the heart, which neither others nor ourselves may take notice of, until some trial doth discover it. Observe 5. The poor man's humble request and Christ's gracious reply. If thou can do anything, help us, says the Father. If thou can believe, all things are possible, says our Savior. Note thence that the fault is not in Christ, but in ourselves, if we receive not that mercy from him which we desire and need. There is no deficiency in Christ's power. The defect lies in our faith. Hereupon, the man cries out with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. If these were tears of joy for the truth of his faith, then we may gather the lowest degree and least measure of faith is matter of joy unspeakable to the owner and possessor of it. If these were tears of sorrow for the weakness of his faith, then we may collect that the remains of unbelief in the children of God do cost them many tears. They are the burden and sorrow of gracious souls. The father of the child cried out with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Observe 6. With what facility and ease our Savior casts out this stubborn devil that had so long possessed this poor child, even with a word of speaking. How long soever Satan has kept possession of a soul, Christ can eject and cast him out both easily and speedily. One word of Christ's mouth is sufficient to help us out of all distress, both bodily and spiritual. Yet did our Lord suffer the wicked spirit to rage and to rent the child before he went out of him, not from any delight in the poor child's misery, but that the multitude, seeing the desperateness of the case, might the more admire the power of Christ in his deliverance. Observe 7. The sovereign power and absolute authority which Christ had even here on earth, when in his state of humiliation over the devils and his angels. He commands them to go out and enter no more into the child, and is obeyed. This was a proof and demonstration of the Godhead of our Savior, that he had power and authority over devils to command and overrule them, to curb and restrain them at his pleasure. And whereas Christ commands the devil not only to come out, but to enter no more into the person, it implies that Satan, being cast out of his hold, earnestly desires to enter in again, to recover his hold, and to regain his possession. But if Christ says, Enter no more, Satan shall obey his voice. Observe 8. The disciples inquire into the reason why they could not cast the stubborn devil out, according to the power which he had given them to work miracles. Christ tells them it was one because of their unbelief, by which understand the weakness of their faith, not their total want of faith. 2. Because they did not, in this extraordinary case, apply themselves to the use of extraordinary means, namely, prayer and fasting. Learn hence, first, that in extraordinary cases, where the necessity either of soul or body do require it, recourse must be had to the use of extraordinary means, one of which is an importune application unto God by solemn prayer. Secondly, that fasting and prayer are two special means of Christ's own appointment for the enabling of his people victoriously to overcome Satan and cast him out of ourselves and others. We must set an edge upon our faith by prayer and upon our prayer by fasting.